celebrating 50 years, ASCP is a membership organization of senior care pharmacists. Our mission is to promote healthy aging by empowering pharmacists with education, resources, and innovative opportunities. Learn more at ASCP.com. ASCP, experts in medication management, improving the lives of older adults. Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Senior RX Radio, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Senior RX Radio is brought to you by the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, the ASCP. ASCP is devoted to optimal medication management and improved health care outcomes for older adults. Learn more at our website, ASCP.com. Welcome to Senior RX Radio, brought to you by the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. We are really fortunate today on the podcast to have Jeanette Wick, and she wrote an amazing piece called Outside Looking In, A Pharmacist's Personal Journey with Family Elders. If you're not a reader or an often reader of Senior Care Pharmacists, which is the journal brought to you by the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, always a wealth of information. I know for me, it's one of those monthly reads when it comes. I always go back and forth. Do I wait for the digital copy or do I wait to get the uh, um, the paper one in my hands? Because it's such a fascinating read um, from an entire journal perspective standpoint. But you know, reading Jeanette's article, you know, we really get a look into the story of the patient, and I think that for me was one of the most interesting pieces. Is I think we see these things as senior care pharmacists, but seeing it in words is it's, it's really powerful. Um, to see it laid out in sort of a story format. So happy to have Jeanette with us. Jeanette, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for your kind words. Um, that was an interesting story to write. I, I write on a number of different topics, and it certainly was uh, a challenge and a kind of a writing cure for me. Um, I have a long history in long-term care. I think the important things in my uh, career has been that I spent 25 years in the United States Public Health Service. Um, during that time, I developed a writing career, and I've written for the Journal of the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists for years and years and years on senior care topics. Currently, I work at the University of Connecticut in their Office of Continuing uh, Education or Pharmacy Professional Development, and uh, I teach I teach a number of different courses in the School of Pharmacy, and it's been quite a rewarding end-of-career change for me. Well, that sounds like a fascinating career with, you know, between sort of the clinical pieces that you, you work with with the students and then you know, the writing piece is just something we don't often hear about in pharmacy. Um, you know, I'm always excited to hear about how different pharmacists have different career paths. So that sounds, that's incredible. Um, and yes, I, I, I'm sure I've read your work before in the past in the journal. It's, like I said, it's one of those things that it's just a great thing to read about. Um, this particular story was fascinating. Um, and, and I think my first question is, you know, do you think this is common? Um, and, and why is it, from, especially from a writer's standpoint, when we read a powerful story, we react to it differently than we might if it's in, you know, sort of a patient chart that maybe a lot of us see. Well, I wish I could tell you that my experience is rare, but I'm afraid it's, it's not. I think it's quite common. 
And, you know, to summarize the experience a little bit, let me just tell our listeners that my aunt and uncle were in their 80s. Um, they had had two children who predeceased them, and they both got into some rather serious end-of-life problems and uh, were trying to manage on their own. Um, people who reach end of life and don't have any children are called elder orphans. There are hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them across the country. And it's a time of life when people need to depend on someone. They need an advocate or someone to support them. And that's how I fell into that role. Um, we are calling my aunt and uncle Kate and Joe. Aunt Kate was my favorite aunt. Um, and I was happy to help where I could. And certainly they had been self-sustaining for a long time, but it got to the point where uh, Kate fell. Um, she cut her leg. She refused to go to the, the hospital. Joe was trying to deal with it. And eventually when he did get her to go to their primary care, they found out she had a 17-inch skin uh, tear that required hospitalization and surgery and it just became a downward spiral of things so over the next uh, nine months we experienced three long-term care facilities multiple hospitalizations and both of their problems Kate's main problem uh, was anorexia by the time she got to the the doctor and actually got some very comprehensive care she was down to around 80 pounds and she was a robust woman throughout her whole life so that was really astounding and she's she was very stylish she was always well dressed and she covered that weight loss pretty well among family uh, members so that's kind of the background there um, but it, this is a really interesting story, and it is a really common story. And one of our biggest concerns was some of the long-term care facilities that we had to deal with were, quite frankly, uh, uh, appalling. Um, I was just shocked at the types of things that went on and how little they cared about how many medications patients were on. My aunt was on... 28 medications, which I, I don't care who you are. That's a lot of medication. You don't have to be a pharmacist to know this is really a problem. Um, but it is a common, a very, very common story. And I think one of the reasons that story is so gut-wrenching when you uh, read it is because it creates a sense of outrage. When you look at a chart, you don't really see outrage. You don't see the people. You don't see the people involved behind the scenes. You see a lot of stuff just written down on paper. And when I'm teaching kids in my pharmacy practice management class about situations that cause outrage, there are two, there are two things that have to come together. The first is risk and the other is hazard. And if you just throw in a little bit of patient vulnerability, you have an explosive situation. And, and this is what happened here. These were high-risk individuals. Joe uh, had serious hearing loss and had had several cardiac arrests and developed a pulmonary embolism. Um, Kate had anorexia and uh, a history of irritable bowel disease. All of those things come together and 
the combination of risk and hazard and vulnerability really creates outrage. When you read about it in a narrative, that's where the outrage comes because you just don't see it in the chart. You know, you just see the patient's problems and maybe you know a little bit about the patient, but you don't see the impact to that patient's quality of life or to the patient's family. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, certainly, it, it looks like putting a face to a story. You know, sometimes I know chart reading, you know, it's, it's easy to make it impersonal to some degree. But, you know, I, I think forever kind of Kate and Joel in the back of my mind, um, if you haven't had a family member go through it, certainly having sort of an anchor to what does this chart mean to that patient, that family, how did they get here is, is just really interesting. Um, so I'll continue to think about certainly going forward in my career, just how that happens. And, you know, it's not, it's more than just a progress in a chart. It is, it's, it's people and lives and, you know, it's those things we think about as pharmacists, I know, but having sort of that powerful effect of the story is, is incredible to have. Um, you know, the beginning of the story, you kind of described what I'm going to kind of call that downward spiral um, that I think often happens as towards the end of life, um, where we have a number of conditions and, um, acute type things that spiral more into chronic things. It's just a lessening of sort of their condition overall. I think one of the things we often think about in healthcare, especially now in senior care, is how do we keep patients from progressing? Do you think there's anything that could have been done early? Any interventions that would have changed the course of the story? Oh, I think that's an endless list. Um, I in retrospect, it's always so much easier to criticize um, in retrospect, looking back. And, and and that isn't my intent to, it's not my intent to criticize the caregivers who had provided care for quite some time. But quite frankly, I think that I saw a tremendous amount of just, oh, uh, Lack of action, you know, just uh, uh, so many caregivers would look at Kate and Joe and say, oh, yeah, they're losing weight. That happens at end of life. Um, instead of saying, oh, my goodness, red flag, anorexia, um, Kate probably lost 120 pounds over three years. And there were a number of different issues that contributed to that. She was a lifelong smoker. Um, she had had irritable bowel syndrome, uh, and she had IBSD, which, you know, made her very suspicious. Uh, Americans have a tendency to hear about other people's dietary restrictions and do that fatal eye roll and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but Kate, there were real issues, things that she couldn't eat, that if she ate them would make her incredibly ill. And, um... So many times she'd go to a family picnic and say, is there any mayonnaise in this? And they'd say, oh, no, no, no mayonnaise. Well, there was mayonnaise, and she'd be sick for two weeks. So she got suspicious, you know, about what was in the food, and she only trusted her own food. Um, she had dentures that over the course of time didn't fit anymore. She'd lost so much weight, they were loose. So chewing was a problem. Um, her daughter had died about three years ago, and it threw her into a horrible depression. And they 
kind of treated it, but not really aggressively. You know, they just gave her a little bit of antidepressant enough so that maybe her appetite might have picked up a little bit, but the depression was still a serious issue. So all of those things kind of lingered. And um, I'm trying to think of the word that folks in diabetes use to uh, describe um, just treating to the status quo. You see a little bit of improvement and you think, ah, we got improvement. But you don't say how, how much further can we go? How much better can this be? So that, uh, that lack of forward movement, that lack of saying we've got anorexia and this is going to kill her, um, that was a problem. And, and almost anybody in their treatment team, they had a cardiologist who saw them fairly regularly and what these, they had a primary care who saw them fairly regularly and what these folks would tell them is, Kate, hey, you have to eat more. Well, that clearly wasn't working. Um, the other problem was that Kate was fairly willing to admit that she had dementia. Um, Joe consistently said that she repeated all the time or she had, would forget things. Well, the real truth here was that Joe's dementia was worse than hers was and that in an effort to save face for him or to give him support, she owned up to the, to the dementia. Um, at some point, if somebody had conducted a mini mental status exam on both of them, we would have known much earlier what we were dealing with with Joe. Um, Joe, because he lost his hearing in the war, um, badly hearing impaired. And I'll tell you, the worst nightmare of this whole thing was dealing with hearing aids. They are incredibly expensive. They are incredibly difficult to manage. And when you've got someone who's, you know, dropping it on the floor, he ran over one with his wheelchair. It was just a, a disaster trying to deal with them. And glasses and hearing aids get lost in the nursing home all the time. I hear about it all the time. The one thing that I think healthcare missed the boat on was that nobody got an, a younger family member involved earlier. At some point, knowing that Kate and Joe had no children, that they were trying to do this all on their own, I wish that someone, a primary care provider of some sort, would have said, we need to get you a patient advocate. Is there somebody in your family who might be able to, to fulfill that role? Um, you know, a large family. We have we have dozens of people in our family. Um, Joe was one of ten children, and five of them were still alive. They were all kinds of nieces and nephews, and nobody said, we need to get a patient advocate for you. And you really, I know what really struck me is you stepped up in that role at some point. And, you know, the amount of care coordination you did, being their advocate was, was incredible. Um, I was... Kind of, you know, you mentioned the elder orphans, and you know, not having realized the impact that that has on the healthcare system is is an incredible thing to think about. Um, and one of the great pieces you point out um, in your article, do you? How much time do you think you spent being kind of that point person? And you know, what happens to patients who don't have that person in their lives? Do you think? Well, I didn't track my time. So in retrospect, I really wish I had. Um, it it uh, all of this came about so quickly. You know, Kate got sick, and then Kate wasn't progressing, and 
it just came about so quickly. And of course, in the autumn semester at school, um, anybody who hasn't taught in a university setting probably has no idea. But that 14 weeks in the autumn semester is absolutely unbelievably busy. So it was a lot of running around. Um, and, and again, I wish I had tracked my time. But I, I will tell you one thing. Um, Joe moved home. Joe had a very, very bad automobile accident in November. Um, he ended up in a convalescent home for about three months. He home, he moved home in February with 24-hour care before he died. He died uh, in mid-March, So, um, and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, and we moved him home with 24-hour care because he was just so unhappy and so difficult in the long-term term care facility. And um, moving him home was uh, a more, uh, it, it was going to make him happier. And as an aside, it was also less expensive. But what we found was once we moved him home, it took even more time. We had a 24-hour caregiver who was absolutely superb. But Joe was sundowning pretty badly, and he'd get up all night long. So we needed a, to give the caregiver a break every day. Um, and we had to coordinate family to get in there so they, they could cover for her for a couple of hours. So she could either run her personal errors or more often than not take a nap so she could be prepared to be up all night long again. And once you move somebody home, here's the deal. There's no supply closet like you have at the long-term care facility. You know, if you need a Band-Aid, it's got to be there. If you need uh, diapers, uh, you know, adult diapers, if you need uh, anything at all, someone has to go to the store and get it. Plus, you have to coordinate all the medication, fill all the medication boxes. And again, the hearing aids and the glasses were a problem. The, the only thing I can tell you is that after Joe died, I was astounded at how much time I had in my schedule. It left a tremendous void. Um, because it is, it's time consuming. You're spending a, a tremendous amount of time just taking care of all of the little problems that you do for yourself and don't even think about. But when you're doing it for someone else who's geographically in a different location than you are, it means getting in the car and going um, and running those things. And I am, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not complaining, but People all over the country are doing this for their loved ones. And, and the big deal is that so many people don't have anyone. That was the most astounding thing about the long-term care facility. Um, Joe, in particular, had roommates in several of the facilities, and they never got any company at all. None. I would read the visitor's book, and all the company for the whole day were Joe's family members. Nobody had come to visit anybody else. And it was really amazing to me that there are elderly people out there that are the definition of vulnerable. They have nobody. Um, I don't know what happens to patients who don't have advocates. I think that they probably just languish. Um, the, the staff at the veteran uh, long-term care facilities would frequently say to us, you have no idea how lucky he is to have you because we have so many residents who don't get any company at all. I, I just, maybe that points to maybe a broken part of our healthcare system as well. Is I think 
patients, families, caregivers, advocates, they, they know these patients better than any medical person could ever. Um, it just seems to be a broken part of our system. I, I know at one point you did a three hour med rack, two days, multiple phone calls, you, know, you talk to providers, you talk to pharmacies. Um, in your piece, you asked sort of the rhetorical question that if home health care providers had this kind of time, you know, I think that's number one, that's interesting, but taking a step kind of further, we have these patients who I think most of us would think are ending up, are higher acuity patients, but ending up in lower levels of healthcare than they probably ever had in the past. Um, and I think that's maybe a potential place for pharmacy is somewhere in some of these lower levels of care. Um, if a home health agency had access to a pharmacist, do you think this would have been something helpful in your case and maybe kind of a, a broader perspective, you know, all these cases of people who are these 20 plus medications that are sold home health care. Is there a place for pharmacy there? Uh, not only is there a place for pharmacy there, I think there should be a required place for pharmacy there. Um, my expertise here comes from uh, elders who, by virtue of having children who are my friends, land in my kind of informal caseload, if you will. <laughs> a friend will call and say, hey, my dad is in an assisted living facility and go on to describe a problem or my mother-in-law needs help and all we can get in is a home health aid three days a week. And then, you know, the person will go on to describe problems or, uh, uh, you know, I'll ask for a medication list and they come back with 18, 19, 23 medications. Um and as we go through it step by step, um, the individual is taking medication for a problem that resolved years ago or taking medication that's duplicative to something else. Um, and it's common. It's really common. So, yes, I think that elders in our nation need a lot more attention in terms of their medication. Um, it was interesting for me each time we went to a primary care provider and went over the list of medications, I would say, you know, can we think about discontinuing this one? Can we think about discontinuing that one? And they'd be surprised that I would talk about the drug interactions that were happening and how toward the end of life, it's not necessarily important for someone to stay on a step that that's something that might be able to be discontinued. So deprescribing was an eye-opening experience for some of the clinicians with whom I dealt. Um, I don't know what people do. I think almost everybody, or it seems to me like almost everybody's got a healthcare provider in their family, a nurse or a pharmacist. And I certainly find that my family reaches out to me, but I don't think they reach out to me as as often as they could or should. So um, uh, we've got a real problem. And, and I know when I talk with my colleagues at UConn who work in geriatric outreach, they talk about these situations all the time where they go into patients' homes and there are piles and piles and piles of medication bottles. And that was something I experienced with Kate. She had drugs for dementia that were different doses, different dosing schemes, um, empty bottles, partially full bottles, bottles that had tablets that were mixed together. And folks who work in geriatric outreach smile and nod and they say, yep, we see that all the time, all the time. 
You know, that's really interesting. And, and one thing that kind of struck me in the piece was you, you mentioned the fact that you had some medication concerns and you, you brought this up and you felt like those kind of fell in deaf ears. How is it as, as a pharmacist, do you think that they didn't listen to the pharmacist here? How is that possible? It's shocking to me. Yeah, uh, it was <laughs> it was a little shocking to me, too. Uh, in some of the long-term care facilities, uh, there was a fair amount of eye rolling. Um, at one point, a social worker actually rolled her eyes right in front of me, and I said, I'm sorry, was there something I just said that you found offensive or not right? How can I help you understand what my concerns are? Um, but to be fair, most of the staff was just astounded that someone cared enough to delve into the record at the level that I did. The, the most important thing that I learned is that timing is everything in terms of communication in the long-term care facility. There is often a mismatch of when the, the pharmacist visits and where the patient is. So, <clears throat> excuse me, while the uh, staff would make note of my concerns to give to the uh, consultant pharmacist. What happened several times is that my aunt would have an episode, a fall, or um, at one point she, her oxygen saturation was low and she had to go to the hospital for a transfusion. And of course, uh, it, it's kind of like when you hear that noise in the car and you take it to the uh, place to be fixed and you get it there and of course it's not making the noise, right? <laughs> what would happen was that my aunt would be in the hospital the week that the consultant pharmacist came. And so he didn't even get her chart because she wasn't there and they didn't know if she was coming back. That was part of the problem. Um, in When they were in the community, auto refill was the dirge of my existence. I would come in the house and someone would have, you know, checked the answering machine and found that the community pharmacy had a prescription ready and they'd go pick it up and it was stuff they weren't taking anymore. And I finally figured out, I couldn't understand where all this medication was coming from. And I finally went to the pharmacy and they said, Oh, that's all on auto refill. And it irritated me so much that I wrote a letter to uh, my state Senator and, and said, we got to do away with this. This is crazy. It's a waste of money and it's a waste of time. It's ridiculous. So, you know, that was a problem. Um, I think people did listen. And I certainly found that um, the speech therapists listened when I came in. They came in and they wanted to do an assessment on uh, their uh, um, both of my aunt and uncle's ability to swallow. And when I ticked through the five reasons why my aunt was losing weight, um, they I think they were really surprised, especially when I brought up the fact that she did have some uh, food insecurities, that she was very careful about what she ate because she didn't want to make herself sick. Um, and certainly after a lifetime of doing that, it was reasonable to expect that she would continue to do that. Um, did they listen? They did. Um, communication in the long-term care facility, it's really difficult. I don't know how many times we had to talk about food that was brought for my aunt and, and how to bring her food that she would actually eat. I had the same problem with my uncle, you know, making sure that he got the breakfast that he preferred. 
Um, but it's a busy place. You know, it's a busy place. And when you spend time in a long-term care facility, simply sitting with a family member and observing, you realize that people who work there are not just sitting around. It is incredibly labor intense. Um, and again, timing's everything. You know, if you can catch the consultant pharmacist, you do pretty well. If you can get a nurse who will actually call the physician and ask him to discontinue something, you can get make some progress. But um, these people are busy. They're really busy. Yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah, com- complex environments that we deal with. And whenever I talk to people outside of sort of the long-term care, I, I always explain it's, it's just a different ecosystem. Um, and, and you've seen it for both the, the professional side and the, the you know, family personal side as well. And I, I can imagine you get another layer of complexity from that standpoint too. Um, Jeanette, the only thing I wanted to end on is, you know, the story. Was there a place that pharmacy, I think you maybe alluded to one of them already, was where did pharmacy succeed uh, and where did we fail at? And then how is profession we take a story like yours and use it to really make ourselves better as individual professionals or as an overall profession? Well, this is where I was really impressed. An area where pharmacists and pharmacy did really well was in establishing trusting relationships with the staff in the long-term care facilities. Nursing staff and prescribers all knew and respected their pharmacists. I was so impressed with that. Um, Whenever I would bring up anything, the the first thing they'd say is, we need to talk to our consultant pharmacist. I'm making a note for the consultant pharmacist. Um, pharmacists in, in the community were always very helpful and willing to take my calls immediately. And this really surprised me because I knew they were horribly busy. I could hear the craziness in the background. And at one point, we picked up a prescription for something I knew hadn't been prescribed. I knew it was a mistake. And the community pharmacist got it straightened out immediately. I had tried to call the doctor's office and I, you know, flaming hoop after flaming hoop. And I wasn't able to to get it straightened out. But the pharmacist really took care of that immediately. Um, I tell my students that people's limitations are often their strengths and excess. And that was certainly the case with the strong bond between consultant pharmacists and the staff at each nursing home. Nursing staff tended to trust their pharmacist. They wanted to verify everything with their pharmacist. And instead of looking at it as a collaborative process, they looked at it as our team needs to look at this. And it really slowed down any kind of progress at all. Um, an area, Another area that I, I honestly was so surprised, there was no evidence at all of medication reconciliation at uh, um, transitions of care. So often I would have to go in and say, wait a minute, you know, this is what the hospital prescribed when he got discharged or wait now, wait, wait, these drugs have been discontinued. And, and um, that was disturbing to me. As a profession, we have to do, do better. And you ask about what individuals can do. What individuals can do is focus on elder care patients and do something every day. Every day, focus on just one patient. It gives you a tremendous sense of accomplishment when you can take a minute and step out from behind the counter or go into a room and talk to somebody 
and go through things and try to understand why things might be the way that they are. It's more than just the list of drugs and the list of symptoms. It's the why we have the symptoms and why the drugs are or are not working. And I, I think that's the most important thing that people can do. That's just a completely powerful way to end this piece because I, I think you're right. And I, I don't have anything extra to add to it. I think that's a great call to action for all of us. Um, I invite everybody to go back and read. It's in the March 2019 Senior Care Pharmacist Journal. It's called Outside Looking In, a pharmacist's personal journey with family elders. Jeanette, thank you incredibly much for, number one, writing the piece and coming on and talking about it. Um, it's a great story, but I think it you know, really resonates with a lot of us and will continue to do so long in the future. So thanks for joining Senior Rx Radio. And thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Senior Rx Radio. Be sure to share this podcast with your fellow consultant pharmacists and pharmacy associates to learn more about better outcomes for older adult patients. Join us on the web at ASCP.com.